Our next partner has a product I literally use every day. I'm not joking, you guys. This year, I was looking for something, a new supplement to take to give me energy, to make sure that I'm getting the vitamins I need and also the greens that I need. With a schedule like mine, sometimes health can go first. And so I wanted to make sure that I started the year out right. So I am taking Athletic Greens and it has been great. One of the things that I love about it is that it comes with this awesome packaging where you can have travel packages. And because of my travel schedule, I wanna make sure I stay on my routine when I'm traveling. So this comes with a nice cup that I can take on the go with me and my packages and take them in the morning and I'm all set. And I can incorporate this into my travel schedule. The lifestyle of AG1 is friendly, whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, all the frees, whatever you call it. This, this one is safe for you to take. It supports mental health, clarity, and alertness. And that's one of the things I've noticed a difference with me having more energy and just being at my best. Um, and I think this is helpful for you. Your subscription comes with a year's supply of vitamin D, which is so important to add in these winter months when you don't get as much sunlight. And this is really important for those with us with melanin skin, where it's harder for us to get our vitamin D. In 2020, AG donated over 1.2 million meals to kids in 2020. And so not only are you getting your supplements, but you're doing good because AG is donating meals um, to kids across the world. Um, in 2020. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient and daily nutrition, especially heading into the flu, cold season, the Rona season, all of the seasons. It's just one scoop in a cup every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. You just take this one scoop and there you have it. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packets with your first purchase. These are the ones that I use. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash BTB. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash BTB to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Believe me, you will not regret it. Hey, Be The Bridge listeners. On every episode you hear, we share about various sponsors who partner with us to support this show. We strive to collaborate with awesome products and services that you will love. We don't want this to waste your time listening to ads, and we don't want you to listen to ads that are not useful, helpful, or impactful. So we're asking for your help. We have created a five-minute survey for you to fill out that will give us great information to make sure that our ads are serving you well. And this is fun. One lucky listener will win a $250 gift card. That's what I said. A $250 gift card from That Sounds Fun Network when they complete the survey. So if you go complete the survey, you qualify to win the $250 gift card. And you can simply visit thatsoundsfunnetwork.com to enter. Winner will be announced Friday, February the 11th. That's Friday, February the 11th over at the That Sounds Fun Network Instagram. So this winner will be announced Friday, February the 11th over at That Sounds Fun Network on Instagram. So make sure you follow at TSF Work. So you want to follow at TSF NET Work. That Sounds Fun Network. Thank you again. Be the bridge, be the bridge. You are listening to the Be the Bridge podcast with Latasha Morrison. Each week, Be The Bridge podcast tackles subjects related to race and culture with the goal of bringing understanding. But I'm going to do it in the spirit of love. We believe understanding can move us toward racial healing, racial equity, and racial unity. Latasha Morrison is the founder of Be The Bridge, which is an organization responding to racial brokenness and systemic injustice in our world. This podcast is an extension of our vision to make sure people are no longer conditioned by a racialized society, but grounded in truth. If you have not hit the subscribe button, please do so now. Without further ado, let's begin today's podcast. Oh, and stick around for some important information at the end. 
Okay. Be the Bridge community. I am here with the one and only. You guys may have never heard his name, but after this, you're going to know his name. Um, I've had the pleasure of knowing him for um, several years now. He also serves on the board of Be The Bridge. Um, He is, um, not only is he smart, but he also has a lot of swag. And for those of you um, who um, may not have heard, I want to introduce you to Dr. Will Gravely. He is the founder and lead pastor of Refuge Community Church. It is a multi-ethnic and cross-cultural church in Austell, Georgia, here in the fabulous Atlanta area. And he is also a visiting professor at Emory University. Um, He's been in the Atlanta metro area um, after graduating the one and only Morehouse College and completing both his Master in Divinity in Theology and the Arts. So not only can he preach, he can also rap and do spoken word and all the things. And so he um, got his doctor of ministry and church leadership and community witness at the renowned Candler School of Theology at Emory University. Um, Upon graduating from Candler, he received the prestigious Fellowship Seminarian Award uh, for his contributions to cross-cultural worships, worship arts as a master's student. Um, He and his wife, Veronica, founded the Stained Glass Project in 2016, a community development organization driven to connect and reflect local communities through their model, the Community Hub. And I want to tell you a little bit about this, too. Um, The Community Hub model connects neighborhoods around the core human needs of health, unity, and belonging in order to equip and empower neighbors to collaborate in transforming their own communities. Beautiful. Uh, Dr. Gravely serves as the lead strategist of the flagship community um, hub, a cultural arts center um, situated at 29, on 29.6 acres in the metro Atlanta. He could probably tell you um, a little bit about this. So I'm so excited to have um, Will on here. Will is also my friend. Um and you know, and it's a, 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 a honor to have him serve on the board. He has a lot of wisdom. Um, you know, I used to call you, you know, that you were young, but now you know you're kind of getting up there, Will. You know, <laughs> you're getting up there a little bit. You know, but that's a, a beautiful thing, and um, I'm, it's just an honor to have you on the podcast. And this is Black History Month. You know. <laughs> But like I, I like to say that I am black 365 days of the year, not just in February. And uh, black history is American history and it's an important 365 days of the year. But this is just the time when we pause to illuminate it a little brighter and uh, talk about it a little more. Uh, but it's not, you know, um, limited to February. Uh, but I wanted to bring you on because I know you are a wealth of information, um, especially about church history. And I wanted just to you to share your insights about church history. And then also, what is it like as a black pastor leading a multi-ethnic um, church, um, multi-ethnic and um and multi cross-cultural church because there's a difference between having a multi-ethnic church and it not being cross-cultural so i think that's important um that a lot of times people don't realize so we're gonna jump in and uh we'll tell the people i i said a lot in the bio i hope i did it justice but you can just tell the people a little bit about yourself um just maybe some parts that i left out sure well, yeah, thank you, Tasha. And again, honored to be with you and uh, also to serve in the way I do uh, with Be The Bridge. So thank you so much. Um, yeah, originally from the Philadelphia area, but like you said, came down to the Atlanta area um, for college. And so being exposed um, in education at Morehouse, I-, I became familiar with figures like, obviously, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but also Benjamin Elijah Mays, Howard Thurman, and the like. And so that would be um, kind of the grassroots space where I found out more about the black church. I'm a proud product of the black church. And uh, many may not know the black church uh, was not birthed um, 
in civil rights. Uh, the black church, I would argue, actually starts um, in the time of Jesus, right? Um, not only with um, Jesus and his disciples being people of color, but also most uh, explicitly with the Ethiopian eunuch uh, who carried the gospel back home um, in the time of Jesus, far before it ever reached Europe. And so the black church has a rich history. Uh, we tend to focus on in the Americas, right? And it being a product of slavery, but black Christianity was not a product of slavery. The black church was birthed or framed um, during the time of enslavement, but the black church in and of itself um, was birthed in the time of Christ. Oh, I love that. And I think that's something that uh, we forget, you know, um, just that story about Philip. And, you know, it's right there. And we all skip over that. <laughs> and there's so many other things we kind of skip over. Uh, so thank you um, for just really getting us to look through a different lens that, you know, the black church existed, you know, during the time when Jesus walked this earth. You know, and um, and so uh, why is the you know, why do you think that black church history is imperative? And it's sad that we have to say black church history and we have to do that because history has been segregated, Mm -hmm. you know. But why do you think it's imperative for um, not just black people to know, Asian people to know, um, our Latinx community to know? But why do you think this is imperative for the white church? Right. Um, I think just it's a great question. Just studying the history of the black church, um, becoming aware begins to dismantle this notion that Christianity is a white religion or tradition, that the churches in Europe are the flagship spaces of theology. Um, Just by a casual uh, exposure to church history, you'd understand how critical the black church has been. Um, all the way from the time of Jesus up until now, right? So a lot of people aren't familiar with the church fathers, or as some scholars will call them, the desert fathers. And um, there, there's four in particular that I think are um, those that set the foundation for what we know as Western theology, or the Western church, right? We need to understand that as, as much as we center Christianity in Europe, um, the Western church is younger than the Eastern church, Right. And the Western church, um, many would argue, established by Peter as he um, led the church uh, in in his own way after Jerusalem um, in Rome, that's kind of where the Western church was born. Uh, But the black church is important. So we go to theology, core tenets of the faith, like uh, the Trinity, um, the divinity of Jesus, uh, Jesus being a begotten son. All of these concepts were thought through and penned by North African scholars, right? So um, some of them were Tertullian, for example, um, who was alive between 160 to 225 AD um, and founded essentially the practice of apologetics, um, how to defend the faith. And for him personally, it was in in the face of pagan religions and traditions. Um, Then we have Origen, who was in Alexandria in Egypt, right? And a lot of us, even when we think of Egypt, we don't think Africa. Egypt is an African nation, right? And um, Origen is responsible for framing the notion of the Trinity and the eternal nature of Jesus. Um, Athanasius is another one uh, who was rooted in Alexandria but was exiled several times under persecution. Uh, but he was actually present at the Council of Nicaea that was responsible for determining what Orthodox Christianity is and even was setting the foundation for the Christian canon or the Bible that we have today. Um, And he defended the divinity of Jesus, right? And then lastly, and I I might argue had the broadest uh, scope of works was Augustine or Augustine of Hippo. And um, it may not be obvious in his name, but he was rooted in Algeria, right? So he wrote things like Confessions, on Christian doctrine, on the Trinity. And um, in 387 AD, he was converted to Christianity and eventually became a bishop in um, Algeria, right? So this is the foundation of Christian theology as we know it. And later on, it went to people um, of European descent, um, which unfortunately is the majority of those that we study in seminary spaces. But the root and foundation of all Christian theology was in North Africa shortly after Jesus ascended. 
And why do you think like in some seminaries that this is not even mentioned? And I think I know I was reading where, you know, in, in Western culture, like they started painting um, these church fathers, you know, with lighter skin, um, depicting them in a lot of ways as, as, as white. What, I mean, we see that the Catholic church has done that, like even with Jesus, you know, right. so, um, you know, and I do believe that that was intentional, you know, it's, it's, it's a form of, um, of white supremacy in, in that sense. And so why do you think it's important for seminaries to teach this history? Yeah, yeah no, that's, that's a great question. And you made some great points even posing it um, for the sake of integrity first, not information alone, but integrity. Right. This is where our theology came from. Uh, the gospel went to Africa first before it went to Europe. And a lot of the, um, I would say, taking Christianity hostage that we've seen in not only American culture, but specifically tied to white supremacy, it couldn't be as effective if we understood church history, right? So just giving credit where credit is due, these North African theologians um, are responsible for what we hold now as Orthodox Christianity. And it's important to know who they were um, for not only the integrity of the gospel and the integrity of the trajectory of the church, but also to oppose these notions of white supremacy being that there's a white God of a white faith and a white chosen people. Um, I think it was easy to kind of whitewash this history because there was a lot of Greek influence in North Africa um, we even have these fairy tale romances between Caesar and Cleopatra, for example. So there was a lot of mixing because of trade and markets with North Northern African nations and Europe. Um, I think the problem is because of Greek influence, there was a duality of names where if you just showed the name without necessarily attributing where they were doing their work, it was easy to whitewash them as Greek citizens or Greek persons. Right. It's kind of like Saul and Paul. Um, in Sunday school, we're kind of taught that Paul had a name change, but in reality, he was a Jewish person with Roman citizenship, right? So Saul was his Hebrew name and Paul was his Roman name, and he carried these two names with him in life, um, depending on what context he was in, determine which name he used. And unfortunately, I think something similar happened with the church fathers. Um, it's easy to look at somebody named Augustine as a Greek white male and not a North African bishop. You know, so that was kind of an issue. Yeah, that's good. That's good for pointing that out. So that's why we have to look, dig a little deeper and do a little more um, hermeneutics and exegesis when we're looking at the full scope of everything, the full narrative in the context of um, what we're reading and the history behind it. Um, what are some of the complications that you see um, as it relates to um, the black church now? Mm. Yes, yeah, so that's a big question. I think um, James Cone said it very well, probably about 10, uh, 10 to 15 years ago. Um, we've since lost him, a, a great pillar of not only the black church, but black theology and liberation theology. But he essentially said that the challenge with the contemporary black church is it has exchanged the gospel of Jesus for a gospel of success. It has exchanged the gospel of Jesus for a gospel of success. And so he said that in many ways, this has shifted the mission of the black church um, and not globally, but in certain pockets, right, to where it is no longer about discipleship and the kingdom of God, but it is about a means to the American dream. Right. And I don't really see that as as much of a strong critique as he meant it. I can kind of see the historical context as to what led to that. Um, challenge in, in the black church, right? So for example, the first schools that would educate us as black people were seminaries, right? So the first places we could receive higher education were in being trained to be ministers, which meant um, pastors and ministers were the first ones to breach these cultural barriers and boundaries. They were the first ones to get more highly educated, the first ones to get higher incomes, usually the first ones to integrate certain communities, when that was an option. And so I believe black clergy were historically closer to being able to experience the American dream than the average African-American um, or black person in the States. Um, now the black church, I believe has a wealth of not only history of struggle and triumph, but also theology. 
Um, the way I argue it is um, you have more God if you need more God. You have more God if you need more God. And that's sort of like a simplistic elementary way of saying um, the more you have to depend on the Lord, the more the Lord is revealed to you. And black people have historically been oppressed on every continent, you know, for centuries. And so our rooting in faith traditions, in particular Christianity or the way, um, has been deep and by necessity, right? So one thing I say is even the black church as an entity, as an identity, the black church was born by necessity, not narcissism. It was born by necessity, not narcissism. To even coin it the black church, some people might argue, well, there's a black church and there's a white church. What's the difference? The black church was identified as black because we were not allowed to worship the same God with white people, right? And so the black church had to take on a faith life of its own, not being allowed to worship in the same spaces as whites. And so that's why I think just studying that history is critical. And the state of the black church has a lot to offer because there's deep, rich theology that has always had practical application because we needed Jesus to break down barriers. We needed Jesus to define us and our identity and our value, our intrinsic imago Dei. We needed it to be real. And so in many ways for the black church, um, there's a deeper sense of theology, more in truth and experience rather than just tradition. Rather than just Wow, incredible insights. Don't go anywhere. We're going to pause for a quick moment and we'll be right back. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. In this day and age, that is super helpful. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. And Be The Bridge listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash Be The Bridge. That is B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Be The Bridge. Make sure you go and sign up. Thanks for staying with us. Let's get back to our conversation. Yeah. And I and I find that so even studying lament and, you know, um, the black church having theology around that um, because of our lived experience. And it's really detached from a lot of um, white white church spaces. And um, I talk about that in the book. And it's just like kind of like revolutionary to a lot of people that are reading it. But it's something that has been our experience. Like it's not new information for us. I mean, you know, there's a book. Half of the psalms are about lament, um, you know, half of the, um, you know, when you think about lamentations, like there's so much lament in the Bible. But like if you're looking through a certain lens, you can completely um, miss that, you know, and it's even how you identify yourself in the story. But um I want you to, I want to take a step back because for those who are listening, um, sometimes there's some myths and some misconceptions around um, liberation theology. And I, I wanted to see if you can give um, an explanation to those who are listening, who are wanting to learn and lean in, um, but they've seen it as something that's like other or seen it as like, um, like, I mean, some people even see it as heresy, you know, I mean, which is right. crazy to me. But um, I, <laughs> I would I would want you to kind of explain it, because I think giving people understanding because we love to talk about things and um, and and throw words out there when we don't truly understand it, you know. And so I want to give a deeper understanding to um what liberation theology um, is and what it means to all of us, because it's not just liberation theology is not just for black people, you know, right. um, it shouldn't be. But I mean, I mean, Jesus was about liberating, right. <laughs> you know, so um, can you give us a little understanding uh, about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the issues is there are certain hot button terms right now that immediately bring conflict, Right. So this whole notion of liberal versus conservative, I think people hear the prefix lib and just automatically think heresy, radical, all these other politicized terms, right? Um, liberation is about freedom. It's about freedom. And if we look at Isaiah 61, the prophecy about Jesus that he read about himself and kind of dropped the mic in the temple, um, he said his call was to set the captives free to set the captives free, right? And that's not just in a spiritual sense 
talking about eternal punishment, he meant in a literal sense, um, the least of these, uh, those that are oppressed. And that's why I love Howard Thurman. He did a lot of work around um, the least of these, most explicitly in the book, Jesus and the Disinherited. Right. So liberation theology is simply partnering with Jesus in his mission to set the captives free. Right. And liberation theology is for everyone to participate in because it is the mission and ministry of Jesus. Now, who that ministry and mission impacts are the beneficiaries of liberation theology. And that's probably where the association comes from as being for black or brown peoples. Right. But liberation theology is for all of us as we partner with Jesus, setting the captives free in a very literal, tangible sense. And so what that looks like is standing up to not only oppressive systems, but oppressive people. Right. Under the authority of the kingdom of God and leveraging um, character of the kingdom being merciful, being kind, being peaceful, and leveraging that otherworldly strategy to accomplish very real-world outcomes. And um, Howard Thurman was a great example of that. He's actually responsible for connecting Dr. King and Gandhi and bringing this philosophy of nonviolence, a liberation theology, if you will, um, and partnering it with the American Civil Rights Movement. Yeah. And I think, you know, even going back to that scripture, um, when we think of the narrative of, of what Jesus said, like who, you know, he names those that were um, that needed freedom. And, you know, right there. Like, and so, and when, when Jesus was walking this earth, it was the widows, it was the orphans, it was those living under the Roman Empire, the Jew- Jewish community, those that were only um, subjugated to the law. And, you know, now he's bringing grace and mercy. And I think the, um, I think that, that we have to look at like this, this, the full context. And I think um, we don't do that well, you know. Um, in seminary or um, and just reading scripture, you know, um, you know, there's this thing called the meta narrative, you know, that I think is important when you're um, when you're really breaking down scripture and looking at all the pieces before we start saying um, this is heretic, you know, this is heresy or something like that. So anyway, um, what you know, I, I, we you kind of explain why there's separation of of church history today, and I think that's important because I remember, <laughs> I remember someone you know saying like, well, there's a a white church and there's a black church. I mean, there's you know Chinese churches, there's you know um, there's uh, Filipino churches. You know, like what I mean. And then it's like, you're looking like, oh my God, like, and I know some of you are listening and you're like, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. And um, it's like, but that's why history is so important um, to understand why these churches exist in this context. Like, like you said, we were not allowed to worship the same God in the same space, you know, um, even in death, like when we died, we were not even allowed to be buried in the same, you know, um, the same place, you know, um, you know, so there's so many layers of this that, you know, that really has to be restored and um, redeemed um, in our story as a, as a, as the Imago Day. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk about as we're in here, I know you lead a, a multi-ethnic, multicultural church and describe to me what that means, because a lot of times people will say, well, we have black people at our church or we have Asian people at our church. What does it mean to be uh, multi-ethnic first? And then we'll yes. go into the cross-cultural. <laughs> okay, excellent. Yeah, multi-ethnic is breaking down your identity beyond these larger racial groups, right? So we understand, many of us, race as a social construct, right? There was no such thing as white, no such thing as black, um, et cetera. And it was a term that was created to kind of group people together for political power or social power, right? Ethnic identity is rooted in culture and lived experience, right? Shared practices, um, which is more of a rich and authentic identity, even deeper than race. So you can realize you can have one, you can have a one race church and a multi-ethnic church at the same time, right? And that's a good thing, but 
and that's kind of the segue into the cross-cultural piece, it only matters, it's only a value if you can experience the different ethnicities and cultures that come with the diversity. Otherwise, um, you're just kind of creating stats for, for a sheet, right? Um, and so ethnic identity forces us to look at culture rather than race is more superficial in how we look. Um, so that's, that's why it's important, especially when we look at Revelation, where Jesus is coming back for a church of every tribe, nation, and tongue. That's ethnic identity, not race, right? So that's really important for the kingdom of God. So, you know, just to break that down a little bit more, like, so you can have a black church and that black church could be multi-ethnic in the sense where if you have people from Ethiopia, if you have people from Kenya, if you have people from Nigeria, um, those are all different ethnicities, you know, um, when you're defining ethnicity. But if we were just defining it by race, you know, you would say, oh, they're all all black people. Same thing with, um, you know, uh, Asian churches, totally different in being Chinese and Japanese. Like that's like Korean and Vietnamese. Like those are different cultures, different ethnicities. But race just puts everybody into a pile, you know, based on your physical characteristics and say, you're Asian, <laughs> you know, or, and it is like, like that's so far from um, their identity, you know, when we you think of their ethnic identity, different languages, I mean, different parts of the country. But we don't say Russians are Asians. So, I mean, I'm just saying. There you go. There you go. <laughs> so, yeah. But, um, you know, so now leading this, I know you've come into your pastor in a church. Uh, what has been some of the challenges of pastoring a multi-ethnic church? Mm. Yeah. So I think there was an ideal we had in our head that didn't match the pathway that we had to navigate. So up front, people love the idea, right? The idea. But then when you start to build the integrity of it is when you run into some issues. Okay. So the idea is about us sharing space, sharing space. But the goal is for us to share a strategy for us to share a common um, identity, even amongst our distinct identities, right? So like we are a family, whatever ethnicity, whatever identity and experience I bring, we now are a family as refuge. And so that was the challenges up front. The idea of it didn't make anybody uncomfortable. Um, so we had to make discomfort a part of our culture, right? So the only way that we know things are going well is when everybody's uncomfortable, Right. If any one group subset is loving the way things are going, we're leaning too far in one group's direction. Right. Um, the challenge with that is, you know, pastoring is personal. It's very personal. There, there's this connection a shepherd has with their, their sheep, their people. And so a lot of the heartbreak along the way was seeing people up front who had fallen in love with the idea and the concept falling off later when it was focused on integrity and building community. Um, so, so that was the hard part. And then being accused of certain things, right? When the church started, we planted refuge with a group of about 26 people and 90% of those 26 were white. Um, the community at that time was the opposite, right? Like 80 something percent black to include West African, um, and, and other groups, um, and then Latino as well, our, our Latinx brothers and sisters, excuse me. And that's what became strange, right, is we got accused of, hey, we're becoming a black church. And it's like, no, we just finally started to look like the community that's been this way for the past 10 years, right? Um, but that, that was some of the challenges. It can feel very personal, and there's, there's heartbreak as you lose people simply because they're giving up based on their, their lack of comfort, their lack of comfort. Their lack of comfort. Their lack of comfort. Their lack of a Spoonful of Faith Children's Book. A Spoonful of Faith Children's Book is releasing February the 15th, 2022. I am so excited. This is a sweet book. It's a rhyming picture book that reminds young readers to make their dreams come true. A Spoonful of Faith is all it takes. And this is the debut book from illustrator Jenna Holiday. 
So I'm so excited about this. Jenna Holiday is a graphic artist and freelance illustrator based in Minneapolis. Her mixed media illustrations are inspired by the diversity of people in the world, the love of botanical elements, motherhood, and faith in everyday life. And I had the opportunity to see some of her illustrations. They are beautiful. And I think this is a book that everyone is going to want to have to make sure that your children's books are very diverse and they represent um, people from all over the world. And also in 2019, Jenna Holiday received the Minnesota State Arts Board Artist Initiative Grant. And she has stationery in my favorite place, Target. So her book is going to be um, everywhere, even in Target. So you don't want to miss the debut book for Jenna Holiday. And it's called A Spoonful of Faith Children's Book. Mm. And that's the thing is like we seek comfort. And I'm, I just I just pose this question a lot of times is when did Jesus ever seek comfort? Let's go. You know, it's like, and but but that's what we seek, and and then we have to get under that. Is what makes your church becoming more brown, um, or what makes your church becoming more? What what makes that uncomfortable for you? You know, like let's deal with that. Let's deal. Let's talk about. It. Let's give words to it, rather than sometimes we use excuses like, well. You, we don't want to say I'm uncomfortable because this is happening because the church is like singing this type of music or I don't feel like, you know, we should do this. I um, I was talking to a black pers- pastor that's, that's leading and he said that he had some, um, he has several um, white members as a part of his church and they were saying that they... Um, they couldn't invite their white friends to the church because the church was too black. And um, and then they also said that, you know, like, why do why do we even have to celebrate black history? And and I'm just like, wow, like, I mean, I mean, I just talked to a lot of black pastors that are really going through. And what would you say to that if someone told you that, like, the church is becoming too black or the why do you have to celebrate Black history, uh, why do we have to put it on display? Right. Let's get underneath that a little bit, Will. No, that's good. That's good. I I think early on in ministry, I would have led with offense rather than seeing it as an opportunity, right? I could stop right there and rather than getting in defense mode and giving like history or facts or whatever, I typically now would return it with a question. So your question is, why is our church becoming so black? And I would say, what's wrong with the black church, right? Why is that a negative thing? Or, um, you know, I'm uncomfortable. Well, let's talk about why you're so comfortable. What other types of spaces make you feel comfortable and start to, you know, take that apart. And then you start to realize that I'm actually only comfortable around other people like me. I actually do think black culture and experience is less than. And that's why I think it's a negative thing that we're becoming black. And one of the easier ways I would address this was, like I said, the church was 90-10 roughly, um, percentage-wise of white to black or people of color. And so I, I would simply flip it at that moment and say, how do you think these few families who you've known for years have felt this entire time? And maybe do you see some spiritual maturity that they have that maybe you can learn from? Because they've been a part of a majority white congregation in their own experience for quite some time and didn't seem to raise the same complaints that you're raising right now. Let's talk about that. Let's unpack that. And then slowly people would realize like, wow, I've got some issues. I've got some implicit biases. I have some issues in perspective, even when it comes to the faith, that might be a little problematic. That's so good. And I know so many pastors are listening to this and holding on to every word because this is the experience of so many pastors. And, um, you know, there's a thing, you know, I I hear of this a lot in in, um, churches that are multi-ethnic, especially churches that have changed because the community has changed. So maybe they started out more predominantly white. Um, The neighborhood has changed and um, they 
bring in a black pastor such as yourself and they think things are going to like, we got a black pastor and, you know, he's going to do things the way we want it, sing the things we want, you know, because I see a lot of churches that say they're multi-ethnic, but um, if you close your eyes, you wouldn't be able to tell it, you know? And so, you know, there's this thing that happens even when I'm talking to pastors, you know, when they start talking about having to address some of the injustices and um, some of these things. That are if they're t- they, people tell them they're talking about race too much, um, um, they're being too political, and then you know you see this thing that we have named as white flight, and um, have you experienced that as as a pastor? And can you define what is white flight? Yes. So unfortunately, I have. Um, I would say in a lot of the situations you named where there's a majority white church that is trying to reach a community that has already diversified and they hire a person of color. Not always, but typically that church wants a black preacher, not a black pastor. They want a black preacher, not a black pastor. What I mean by that is they're willing to have that face in the pulpit or that face on their website, but not to submit to that person's leadership. Right? So as long as the power dynamics are retained, they don't care who's in that position. And that's typically what is causing a lot of burnout for black pastors that are in multi-ethnic or leading multi-ethnic churches is there's this quiet uprising, this quiet swell that is trying to retain power dynamics. Because when a black person walks in their autonomy and walks in confidence, it's always seen as rebellious, right? Not healthy leadership, not strong decision-making, not deep-rooted conviction. A lot of white brothers and sisters are not used to seeing black people walk in authority because we've been historically oppressed for so long. Right. So that leads to white flight is when uh, those people that have quietly held power or been in obvious positions of power start to feel like they're losing influence rather than them leaving the position of teacher and sitting in the seat of student. They would rather leave because too much of their life and their identity is connected to that. Right. So church being such a a sentimental space, uh, uh, a central space in our lives, if somebody feels like they lost power or lost a part of their identity at church, it starts to dismantle everything else, right? And and unfortunately, I got to see that firsthand where there are people that would say, I'm not racist. There's not a bigoted bone in my body. The classic, I don't see color, right? Which is problematic in and of itself, who over time realized they not only had implicit bias, but maybe some issues where there's a bit of white supremacist perspective, but then of course they left because the music changed or so-and-so was uncomfortable. The, the congregation is a little too animated. We're going to church a little closer to home. All the palatable excuses, but all the conversation behind closed doors was really rooted in culture. So that's, that's the white flight piece. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking to a friend and, um, you know, they go to a multi-ethnic church and, um, it was like the summer camp thing and um, they were taking pictures at the buses, all the kids getting on. And it was like, all I saw was like what appeared to be all black kids. They were multi-ethnic because they have a lot of Caribbean people and, you know. Um, but then when I saw video of the camp itself, it was more, um, you know, integrated. Like I saw more, um, you know, white kids. I, you know, I saw just a more of a mixture and, I, I asked the question, I said, like, oh, I didn't see on the, from the video from the bus. I thought it was most predominantly, you know, black kids that went to the camp and they were like, oh, no, um, the white kids, their their parents drove them up. They didn't ride. They didn't ride the bus, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, and, um, you know, are either most of the the white congregation goes to a different service time, you know, and I'm like, so you basically have segregation within the church, within the multi-ethnic church. I was, I was like, how is that right? And how can you see that, that it's okay, you know, um, or try to ignore the problem that you're seeing? Um, because I, I think people realize, I don't know if people realize that 
and eternity that is not gonna be there's no sections like (laughs) you better learn to get along now if you having a problem down here you Uh, may not like heaven like i mean yeah (laughs) (laughs) you know and so i'm like if you're so uncomfortable now you know they're not just going to be singing chris tomlin like you know like and so and so i'm just and nothing's wrong with chris tomlin but i'm just saying just like nothing's wrong with kurt kurt franklin you know and so um so anyway i just like it it's like i think why do you think it's easier for a black person to go to a predominantly white church and be okay 50 percent of the time you know um than it is for a white person to go to a black church and just feel so uncomfortable yeah that's the question that's the question it's because i believe we have to in every other area of life anyway, right? Like the the average black person has had to navigate majority white spaces or at least assumes what they would do. They had to think about it and consider it um, at some point in their lives. Um, Because of white supremacy, whiteness is normative, right? It's normal, it's the standard, it's status quo. And so the average white person doesn't ever have to think about their own racial identity or ethnic identity let alone how to navigate other spaces, right? And so I think, unfortunately, we've just been used to it. And whether that's generational trauma or generational tradition, it's been taught in different generations that, listen, this is something you're going to have to navigate, right? You you see this from great-grandparents all the way down to children of today. The typical Black parent is in some way, shape, or form preparing their Black kids to be in white spaces in some way. And so I just think uh, we have a lot more experience in it. And so that's why I think it's a little easier for us. What advice would you give to those that are, that um, our brothers and sisters that are white, that are on that journey where they are at um, um, a church that has a, a black pastor or a church that has a Asian pastor or Asian descent or at a church where there's a Latinx pastor, like, um, what, how can they, um, how can they show more support, um, to the pastor? Um, what are some ways that they can better thrive in that environment? You know, what kind of mindset would they have to have in order, um, to do that well. Yeah, that's excellent and super helpful. I think people need to realize that um, black or brown pastors leading multi-ethnic churches, especially those that have a significant population of white brothers and sisters, are wearing a weight and are wrestling with a tension that never goes away because they're always perceived as somewhere in the middle. Right. It would be a lot easier for many of us to just be comfortable in a black church setting and just say, whatever, this is easier. I feel more mentally healthy. You know, it's less stressful. It's second nature. I'll just lead my own people. But for those of us that have a conviction to see Christ's kingdom the way Christ defined it wherever possible, we need help and support. So what does that look like? As simple as words of encouragement along the way, we need to know that this is actually working. And not that people are doing it begrudgingly, but they're doing it because they feel like this is what needs to be done. There's a boldness about it, right? Not begrudgingly. Um, Secondly, it's uh, occupying those closed door conversations on behalf of the leadership or the mission of the church, right? There's there's a certain group of congregants that are never going to say what they really think to that pastor. They're never going to share what they're really feeling with that pastor. Um, one, wherever those spaces are, wherever those conversations are happening, there needs to be some healthy, loving counter to the complaints that people are feeling free to share. At the same time, with wisdom, the pastor needs to be aware of where their people really are so that they can be discipled out of it, right? So that community can really go deep enough to cover that that click. And so, um, Words of affirmation. I think the other thing that a lot of people miss is uh, resources, relationships, 
financial support, et cetera, because this needs to happen. In fact, Jesus won't come back until it happens. <laughs> so, so it's a prerequisite, right? It's going to help all of us, right? Um, but a lot of times, because of white flight or, or other things similar, uh, a lot of people that could help refuse to help. And so typically these multi-ethnic spaces are under-resourced, whether that's with strategic partnerships with people or in the material sense uh, with finances. So those, those are a few practical ways to support. Oh, that's good. That's good. Um, I mean, this is, you know, and I know I just, I just talked to so many pastors that are just going through and they're just like, like, just can't believe it. So they're, you know, some of them are like, oh, you know, they want to do trainings and different things. And I'm like, okay, I think you really have to engage the scripture and really discipling people, you know, because um, this is a part of their spiritual formation. They've been formed um, the wrong way. And so it's like you kind of got to do some of that undigging and really showing this so that it can become a conviction where they can begin to see, you know, some of the blind spots. Um, and then I think you can do some of uh, the training once you do that, um, that really, I want to say that biblical um, um, destructing and restructuring, you know, um, you know, I think that's important because I think some of this comes from the lens and even how people are reading the Bible, you know, um, and so I think that's important. So I'm so grateful, you know, um, for for all that you're doing, um, you know, in the church and everything. What what words of encouragement would you give to pastors um, that are leading um, multi-ethnic and multi cross-cultural churches? Mm. I would say um, guard your heart in this specific area. Don't do this work because you have to. Do this work because it's holy. Don't do it because you have to. Do it because it's holy. Because feeling obligated is eventually going to become the obstacle, right? It's going to lead to burnout. One day you're not going to have the energy and you're going to say, forget it. It's not worth it. Because it's holy, it's other, we can start to expect that a fallen world is not going to be receptive and supportive to this. But this is the Lord's will. This is God's desire. This is Christ's bride, right? Um, And then just being honest, from my own experience, there were moments where in my mind I had given up on the notion of a multi-ethnic cross-cultural church. Um, And honestly, it's kind of where our desire for community-based transformation came from is we don't just have a spiritual issue, we have a social issue, right? So I just want to encourage you, it's all still relationships. That's what the church is built off of. And loving your neighbor means being a good neighbor. So don't feel obligated to do it. Just remember that it's holy and don't do it because you have to. And that this is just a further expression of the faith that you already hold dear. Don't give up. And what would you say to even pastors, maybe uh, pastors like yourself, that most of their congregation is um, black, you know, and they're 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 trying to 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 reach people, but um, they're having a difficult time reaching people um, without people wanting to um, change them. What is the difference between that? I guess this is a a loaded question because um, I hear pastors where they're like, you know, they're pastoring a black church and they're trying to, you know, you know, put out the net and they really want to be multi-ethnic. Um, but they're having a difficult time. It could be because of um, space, the, you know, the community that, that they're in. Um, and then you have sometimes white churches just like, oh, well, we're just going to reach who we are. This is just who we are. And so where's the balance of that where... Do you feel like every one of us should be trying to reach a multi-ethnic congregation or do you feel like some churches should just be white and then some churches should just be black? I yeah, know that's, I, I know I went there. I, I went there. That's okay. That's okay. I love it. I know. I just felt led by the spirits. I, I feel you. I feel you. I feel you. Now nah, let's go. Let's go. Yeah. So honestly, that was the biggest pivot our ministry had to take in 2020 is to really ask ourselves, what's our why behind our multi-ethnic and cross-cultural identity? And 
to be real. Some of it was just to be different than the status quo, not because we felt like this deep sense of mission to do it. And if we're not careful, that marker becomes an idol itself where you will do anything to maintain the look or feel of this multi-ethnic ministry and you'll have mission drift from what you're supposed to do as a local church, right? Like this is an adjective, not a noun. Like you're multi-ethnic, but it's still the church, right? So if you forget about grassroots, locally rooted ministry, you're not being a local church anyway. And so I think a local church should reflect its local community And that's why even we with our organization had to take a step back and say, we're leaning less in the direction of um, multi-ethnic and the racial reconciliation piece and giving local churches the tools to just reach the people around them. Because you shouldn't have people driving an hour and a half just so you can be multi-ethnic, right? You shouldn't be flying in your diversity. If the people in that community where you can throw a rock and hit their proverbial house, don't do that. <laughs> it, that's who you should be, right? That's who you should be fishing for. And that's that's one of the things I, I love about parish ministry. There may be some Protestant folks that have some issues with Catholicism, right? But one notion that they do very well is that this local church is for this local community. And so I think if we focus on neighboring and taking that literally, um, it kind of protects us from multi-ethnic being like this viral trend or multi-ethnic becoming this idol that actually makes us forget we're a church too, right? So to free people up, if you're in a rural um, setting and your church is white or black, um, go to the multi-ethnic identity piece or look for other ways you can see diversity, um, whether that's age, income, education, just make sure you're not creating a social club and that's what keeps us healthy. Yeah, and I think, you know, because I think you can have um, um, a predominantly, maybe your church, you're in a, a 95%, you know, white area and that's who you have in that area. But there's still a way to bring about diversity in your teaching. It doesn't mean that you don't teach this thing. It doesn't mean that you don't celebrate um, black history or um, AAPI. It doesn't mean that you don't celebrate, you know, Latinx or make that a part of what your um, your community is learning. It doesn't mean that you don't, you know, look at the children's ministry curriculum and make sure that um, all of God's children are seen, even if they're not in your congregation. You know, it doesn't mean that you don't expose people to the writings and teachings of people that look different from them, even if they're not in your community. And I think that's um, something important uh, where you can still do this work because we should do this work uh, because we're, you know, we are all... um, you know, created in the Imago day. And we're yeah. all, I mean, like you said, Revelation 7, 9, like some of y'all going to be surprised. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to be really surprised. Yeah. So you can still prepare people for that. You could prepare people for the Revelation 7, 9, you know, even in a predominantly uh, white space or Latinx space where it's not strange or, or foreign Um to them, you know, uh, so I think that's so good. This is a great conversation now. Okay. As we close, what are some things that are, um, um, well, before we get that, what are some things I like to ask this question? What are these, what are some things that are causing you to lament right now? Um, I'm lamenting over, how politicized everything has become. And one side of that is the culture, but more deeply is the church. You can't say a theological term and it's not pitted as liberal or conservative, Democrat or Republican, this or that. And I think we're in a space that's so dangerous. We have to do like mental gymnastics before we can even speak sound doctrine. Like we shouldn't have to think twice about saying something Jesus said. We, th- we shouldn't have to think twice about exegeting scripture in a healthy whole way, right? But that's the concern is that things are so political. It's political first. Everything's political first. So I'm lamenting over that. Um, I think the other piece is I'm lamenting over um, 
just the American church and how much of an institution it's become when we had such an opportunity for it to be um, a flagship of integrity when it came to Jesus's ministry. Like, uh, and, and I connected that to Constantine, but the, the American church has been functioning as an institution rather than a movement, I feel like ever since um, the, the 17th century over here, so. That's good. That's a good word. I mean, um, there is so much to um, to lament over, you know. Um, and what do you feel like the 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 way forward? I know when you when you, when you said that, I I just remember um, a friend of mine posted a scripture on Ezekiel, like just a quote from Ezekiel, and someone in the comment section said that's CRT. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> and she was like, this is Ezekiel. <laughs> like, you know, and when we, and so I want people to realize when we talk about everything is so politicized, like, I mean, to take, you know, a quote from Ezekiel and to say that that's, that's scary. That's really scary on what's happening within the church or, and that we would, um, you know, it's just something I'm just, that's, that's my prayer, you know, um, you know, is that we would just be better neighbors to one another and just not really seek to tear each other down. Um, even when we make mistakes, you know, I, I don't, I don't like how things play out. That's one of the things I'm lamenting over, but um, what are some things that's, um, what do you think the way forward is? And then the last question that we'll close with, what is bringing you hope? Wow. Okay. Um, the, the way forward for us is going back to Jesus in the early church and not trying to do a slight upgrade to 80s and 90s uh, American church, right? And I think what's, what's a little scary for my generation is that we start with what we inherited from the previous generation, but we don't go back to what Jesus established. So there could be so much... Yeah, our generation, we typically start with what we've inherited from the previous generation, but not starting with what Jesus established. And the danger with that is we could be so far off from the way, as I call it, Jesus's ministry and model in the kingdom, that we're simply pruning a branch that ought to have been cut off years ago, right? And wondering why the fruit keeps coming. Um, we need to start with Jesus in the early church, period. Not this revival, not this mega church pastor, not this popular ministry. Start with Jesus and the early church. And if we get the same results, so be it. But if not, this is what the Lord intended. Um, so that's our way forward is to go back to this notion of neighboring and doing that well and watching God multiply it. Um, what, what gives me hope is... I see this intergenerational work and partnership happening. And that's, that's what's going to keep this effective is we're not replicating what somebody else did that we just didn't know about. When all the generations come together, we can talk about what worked and what didn't. We can talk about the fatigue of those that have been carrying it for decades and hand it off to the energy of those that simply need direction. But are excited and encouraged and driven to, to do the work. Um, so I love how generations are coming together. I think one other thing that gives me hope is even in the desperation of a year like 2020, it forced everyone to look in the mirror. And there is at least, even if people seem more polarized, there's more clarity of perspective. I think we're seeing more authenticity, even if it's ugly, I think we're seeing more authenticity and we have a lot we can do with authenticity when we're not carrying around these facades. So I do think those are two things that gives me hope. Okay, good. Thank you so much. Now you've heard Dr. Will Gravely, um, resident of Atlanta, Georgia, also Austell. <laughs> Where can people find you, Will? Yeah, you can um, find us on Instagram. You can find us uh, at our website, refugecommunitychurchatl.com. And uh, in the next few months, we'll be opening up our flagship community hub where we connect neighbors around health, unity, and belonging. So stay tuned for that as well. 
Oh, cool. So great to have you. We got to check that out. Um, you guys look him up. Um, Dr. Will Gravely, it was a pleasure to have you here to bring about um, this knowledge. Um, in the month of Black History Month, you know, we're Black 365 days of the year, you know. Um, but this is just a time where we're just taking a little pause, pushing the little pause button to illuminate um, voices and stories um, a little more. So thank you so much for joining us on the Be The Bridge um, podcast. Thank you, community, for um, listening to us and um, for downloading and subscribing. So make sure you share this podcast with um, those that you think it will benefit. Um, and then those that, you know, share it with everyone <laughs> because it will be beneficial to everyone. So thank you so much for joining us on the Be The Bridge podcast. Go to the donors table if you'd like to hear the unedited version of this podcast. Thanks for listening to the Be The Bridge podcast. To find out more about the Be The Bridge organization and or to become a bridge builder in your community, go to bethebridge.com. Again, that's bethebridge.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, remember to rate and review it on this platform and share it with as many people as you possibly can. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Today's show was edited, recorded, and produced by Trayvon Potts at Integrated Entertainment Studios in Metro Atlanta, Georgia. The host and executive producer is Latasha Morrison. Lauren C. Brown is the senior producer. And transcribed by Sarah Conitzer. Please join us next time. This has been a Be The Bridge production.